chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. I'll wait till most of the page turning stops. So again, this is the Apostle Paul speaking here in the book of Romans. Verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and glad that uh, I can be back in, uh, in this environment preaching again, and we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. We've been looking at this for a number of months now, and it'll actually take us through the end of 2014, so uh, we're here for a while. Uh, last uh, time we were in this book, Josh was preaching, and we went through chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and there was something that was said in verse 5 that if you've been around church before or if you've been a Christian or even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian but you just sort of have thought it all about God, you, you perhaps heard it and it's so familiar and it's so common that you probably didn't even catch it. So grab your, grab your Bible again if you have it. Look at Romans 5 verse 5. Uh, Paul had been talking about how we rejoice in God even despite suffering and trials. And in, in verse 5, it says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out. If you've been around church, if you've thought about God, if you've ever read the Bible, if you've ever been in any kind of spiritual environment, you've heard that God loves you. But I don't think most of us actually believe it. Now, we cognitively believe it. Like, we would tell people, hey, if you said, you know, hey, does God love you? You would say, yes. Does God love you? Yes. Right? I, I kind of was asking my kids this, and they were saying, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they, we got it. But the reality is we don't get it. We don't think God really loves us, at least the way you define love. So uh, the New Oxford Dictionary defines love like this. Love is an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. Does God love you like that? Or perhaps, while we would say we think God loves us, is it, is it perhaps true that we don't really believe at our heart level that God loves us, that he has an intense, deep feeling of affection toward us, but rather we believe that God tolerates us? God tolerates us. Here's a definition of tolerate. To tolerate is to allow the existence or practice of something that one does not necessarily like or agree with without interference. Now, that doesn't sound as good. God tolerates you. I mean, right? You don't go like, hey, kids, gather up. God tolerates you. God would rather not really be around you, and you're kind of a minor inconvenience to him, but he'll let you exist. We would never say that, but in reality, that's what we believe. 
Even those of you who are Christians, even those of you who would say that that Christ has died for you and, and that he loves you and that you love him, the way we function, the way we actually live so much of the time is believing that God merely tolerates us. God wants us at arm's length. We have a hard time believing that there's really a deep, intense feeling of affection that God would have toward us. And it makes sense why we'd have that. See, if we were treated the way we treat God, we would think that too, right? Imagine if you had a friend or if you had a person in your life, a family member, and the way they treated you was most of the time they just ignored you. You know, you would try to be in touch with them. You would try to relate to them. You know, you would call them and they would sort of grab their phone and go, eh, ignore Right? Or then maybe like you'd send them an email and it's like maybe they read it, maybe they don't. You know, you kind of, you know, they, they don't really interact with you much. But, but then when they need something, they come to you. You go, hey, I need to borrow some money. Hey, could you give me this? Hey, I've got this thing that I need. But, but the rest of the time, they don't really want to talk to you. Imagine someone treated you like that. And then imagine you actually needed something from them and you said, hey, this is what I need you to do. And their reaction was, Ugh. rolled their eyes wouldn't really do it. See, that's how we treat God. So it's no wonder that we think that God merely tolerates us, because at best, if someone treated us that way, we would just tolerate them. We wouldn't have a deep feeling of intense affection. We wouldn't have that if someone treated us that way, and yet that's how we treat God. And here's how I know that we don't really believe that God loves us. We, we, we really think that God just tolerates us. And the way we know that is if you really believe that God had an intense feeling of deep affection for you, why don't you draw near to him more in prayer? If you really believe that God has a deep feeling of intense affection for you, why don't you trust him with your money and your time? Why aren't you more eager to tell others about him? It's because deep down, though you would pass the God loves me test in your head, in your heart, you just believe he tolerates you. He puts up with you. Because really, you're the one that just kind of ignores his calls and doesn't read his emails and rolls your eyes when he asks you to do something. And you only come to him when you need something, right? And if you were treated like that, you wouldn't love a person. Maybe if they changed, you'd love them, but, but... but you would just tolerate them. So it's no wonder that that's how we approach God. And yet, in the passage we just studied a couple weeks ago, he tells us God's love has been poured out into our hearts. God loves us. And it's one thing, as we all know, to say that someone loves you, but it's another thing to prove it. So if God were to prove it, if God were to say, listen, you know intellectually that I love you, you're living like I just tolerate you, but I want to convince you that I really do love you. What would God say? What would God do? Well, that is what we look at in this passage of Scripture today. So grab your Bible, and God is going to show us, he's going to prove to us that he doesn't want to just be at arm's length, and he isn't just merely tolerating us, but he actually loves us. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. The first way we know that God really loves us, the first way God has proven his love to us is that he embraces us at our worst. He embraces us at our worst. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, that we're still is actually a present tense verb. It's the idea of we're continually, we're in an ongoing way, still weak. 
still helpless, still sick, while we were still sick, at the right time, that means when there were no other options, when we had no other hope, when there was no other place to turn, while we were still weak in the very middle of our weakness and sin, at the right time, we had no other options, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. If you're here today and you're like, you know what, one of my problems with church and with Jesus and with Christianity is I just am not a very godly person. I don't see there's any way that God could accept me because I'm not godly. I'm not a very good person. Well, good news. Did you read that, verse 6? While we were still weak, in the middle right now of your weakness, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still per week, currently, presently, now, Christ died for us. It might say, for while we were spending money we didn't have, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were looking at inappropriate images, in the middle of it, that very night, with each progressive click, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were losing our temper with our children, Christ died for the ungodly. In the very middle of it, God loves us. He, he extends himself to us. He embraces us when we're at our worst. Right? If someone treated us the way we treat God, we might decide to not just tolerate them but love them, but only if they changed. Only if they really reformed, only if they really turned things around. You say, hey, man, you got to start reading my emails, and you got to start answering my phone calls, and you got to, you know, when I ask you to do something, you got to do it. And if you do that, then I'll love you, right? That's how we tend to relate to people. But God is loving us while we continue to ignore his calls, while we continue to roll our eyes. He embraces us when we're at our worst. Jesus encountered a number of people that were like this in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus was crucified, the scripture tells us, between two thieves. Two men who had stolen, had robbed people, had probably, it was probably like a kind of aggravated or uh, violent assault, and perhaps there was even murder or something like that involved. And these men are justly condemned to death, and they're along with Jesus. Both of them are shouting out at him and mocking him, and at one point, one of them has a change of heart, and he thinks to himself, and he says to the other guy, he says, we deserve to be here. We deserve this, but he's done nothing wrong. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Today, today, while you are still weak, at the right time, I will die for you and you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hey, clean up your act first and then I'll, then I'll accept you. Says, no, I'm going to accept you today while you're still weak at the right time. There's another time where a lady is caught in the act of adultery. And the way that Scripture reads, you kind of get the sense of, like, this, like, just happened. And, and, and people have somehow caught her in the act of adultery and brought her, publicly shaming her before Jesus. Chances are she may even just have a sheet wrapped around her if she's lucky. 
And the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the scripture says we should stone a woman like this. What do you say? And while she was still weak, while she was still a sinner, you know what Jesus said? Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. One by one, they begin to walk away, and Jesus says, they don't condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Notice, he didn't say, if you sin no more, then I won't condemn you. But he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. While she was still weak, while she was still a sinner, caught in the very midst of her sin, Jesus embraced her at his worst. That's not someone who just tolerates you. That's love. Here's the other way that we know that God loves us, that he proves it to us, is that he pays the highest cost. He pays the highest cost. Do you see that in verse 8? God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the highest cost. There's a reason why when you see veterans, right, and don't you love, do any of you watch these um, videos on YouTube of like these reuniting moments where people are coming home from overseas and right it's like the umpire takes off his mask and it's dad and he's back and right and there's all these if you watch those I mean like you can't watch them and not tear up and not cry and then you go to a game or you go to a concert or you go anywhere and and they honor veterans and and when veterans are honored what, what happens every time we applaud we cheer we go yay why because we know that veterans we know that people serving And the armed forces are risking the highest cost. So we honor that. We appreciate that. Well, listen, Jesus didn't just risk it. He paid it. He paid the highest cost. And he paid it for those who didn't deserve it. Paul says kind of an interesting thing. If you look at verse 7, Verse 7, he says uh, this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So some people wonder, well, what's verse 7 about? Is that is it talking about different kinds of people? Uh, Paul's point seems to be this. If there was a good person in your life, you might die for him. There's someone that you loved and someone you appreciated and someone that was good to you and you were kind of put in a key moment. You might go, you know what? I'll sacrifice myself for them. You might do that. Now, you might not, right? I mean, he says, he says you, you scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps you, you, you might dare to die. Maybe you would. You're not sure. But, but here's what Paul knows for sure. You would never lay your life down for someone that, that really didn't deserve it, that really had hurt you. So, when I was a kid, you could do a lot to my mom. You could say things about her. You could say things about the people she worked with. You could criticize her. But if you hurt me, mama bear came out. Right? Like, there are, there are some girls that broke up with me in high school. I know it's hard to believe <laughs> that that would happen, but it's true. It really did. They missed out. And, and I, my mom still hates them. It's like, mom. This was 20 years ago. Like, get over it. Like, and it's like, I still can't believe she treated you that way, right? I mean, there's just this, right? Like, if someone really hurts you, right? And so, like, my mom, you know, might lay down her life for Ryan Strain, my best high school friend and best man in my wedding. She might possibly, she ain't laying down her life for Kim Hoover. 
right? No way. No way. Right? And you wouldn't, th- this is why when Jesus says to, to love your enemies, it's so radical. It's so different. It's so counterintuitive. And this is saying, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen, you've heard that Christ has died for you so many times that I think it just sort of rolls off you. Kind of like hearing God loves you. You just go, really? He died for you. That means that every whip, lash, that, that embedded in his skin with shards of glass and stone and bone and were ripped off, every single whip he took took for you. And every time his brow was pierced by a thorn from that crown that they pounded on his head, it was for you. Every time the nail was pounded in his wrists and in his feet, it was for you. You know, Jesus wasn't assassinated. Right, like you, we've seen assassinations at different points. I was reading uh, when we were on, uh, in Colorado a few weeks ago with the Brazeltons. We were in this little kind of gift shop thing, and they had this weird little book of like um, kind of crazy things kids have said on test answers and stuff like that. And um, and so they would ask the test question and then show what the kid had written. And there was one that I was just thumbing through it, and and one of them said, "If you could tell, if you could give any advice to President Lincoln, what would it be?" Kid wrote. I would tell him to never, ever go in a theater, right? Like, I mean, Abraham Lincoln goes to a theater. He doesn't know that he's going to be assassinated that night. It just happens. You know, many years later, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, there had been threats against him. He knew he was a marked man to a degree, and he was brave and courageous and willing to say, listen, if I die for this cause, I die for it. But when he stepped out on that balcony, he didn't know. This Sunday marks the 50th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama where some Ku Klux Klan members went in and bombed it and four children lost their lives. They went to church that morning and they didn't know that they'd die. Listen, Jesus wasn't assassinated. He knew it was coming. And he didn't just know it was coming, he walked into it. He prepared his disciples. He told them, this is going to happen. So much so that they were like, Jesus, that's crazy. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. I know what's going on here. I'm going to die for this. Jesus chose it. He paid the highest cost. You don't do that for people that treat you the way we treat him if you just tolerate them. That's real love. Now, there's a third way we know that God loves us, is that he promises our salvation. He promises our salvation. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now there's a lot of sort of uh, technical and theological language in there, right? Verse 9, we've now been justified. We've been made right with God. We've been declared righteous. We've been acquitted uh, for the crimes we've committed. We've been justified. That's, that's what's happened. 
And then he says at the end of verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, so we've been declared righteous, but the time is coming where we're going to be saved from the wrath of God. That's verse 9. Verse 10 then says, if, it's just parallel to verse 9. These are parallel verses. Verse 10 then says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, so we're made right with God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus promises our salvation. Now, this is interesting because there's places in the Apostle Paul, if you read his letters, especially Ephesians, Ephesians 2, where, where Paul talks about the idea of being saved or salvation. And, and, and if you've been around church or maybe if you're new to church, sometimes you'll hear people they'll say, are you saved? When did you get saved? And what they mean is, when did you have a time where you, we came to faith in Christ? You were rescued from your sin. You were rescued from the wrath of God that was hanging over your head because of your sin. You were rescued from that. You were saved. And there's times where Paul in his writings talks about saved in a past tense. Where like in Ephesians 2, he'll say, for by grace we have been saved through faith. But here, it's not past tense, it's future tense. Did you see that? The past tense stuff is we've been justified, we've been reconciled, but, but here it says two times, it says much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. We shall be saved. It's coming in the future. You go, well, wait a second, Paul, it, did it happen in the past? Right? It, are we saved or are we going to be saved? Answer, yes, yes. It's like if someone came to you, you could say, and they said, are you saved? If you're, you know, I'm saying, imagine you're a genuine Christian here. And you, are you saved? On one hand, you could say, well, yes. God has forgiven my sin. God has justified me and made me right with him. And I've been reconciled into a relationship with him through Jesus' death. Yes, I'm saved. But on the other hand, you're not fully saved, right? You're still experiencing this world and its sin and your own sin. And, and the day's coming when you're going to stand before God, and are, are you sure that God is going to forgive you in that day? Right? So, so, yeah, I'm saved. If someone said to you, are you saved, you, you could in some ways also say, no, I'm not. I haven't been fully delivered from this sinful life and this sinful world. It's like this. If you've seen a movie trailer, have you seen the movie? Well, yes and no, right? I mean, you see a trailer, it's actual parts of the movie, right? They don't show you like the deleted scenes in the movie. They usually only show you the best parts of the movie, which makes it where if it's a romantic comedy, it's like the whole movie in three minutes, <laughs> right? You don't even need to go to the movie because you've seen the movie, right? You've seen actual parts of the movie. So if someone says, uh, you see a trailer, you go, have you seen that? Have you seen that movie? You could in some sense say, yeah. I've seen real parts of the movie. I think I understand the storyline. But in another sense, you haven't seen it at all, right? You haven't seen the whole movie. You've seen part, but there's more to come. Right? If you go out in the morning and it's the sunrise and the sun is coming up and you can begin to see the sun kind of over the superstition mountains and you see the the beauty of the, the colors in the sky. And, and that, you know, at that moment, if someone said to you, hey, is it day? You go, well, yeah, it is. It truly is. But it's not like 2 o'clock in the afternoon day, right? And, and so here's what's going on. Paul is saying, 
that we are saved by what he's done, we're, we're justified, we're made right, but there's a promise of something better to come. There's a promise of a hope. There's a promise of a future salvation. And if you have ever experienced periods of discouragement and periods of, of, of depression and being downcast, you know how significant it is to have hope. I went through a season earlier this year, and, and at times I still kind of go in there where I'll get very easily discouraged, very easily depressed. Things that shouldn't bother me or shouldn't kind of whack me out, just kind of, ah, oh, you get burdened. You ever been there? There were plenty of times earlier this year where I'm, you know, calling Matthew and lamenting how it's never going to get better, and it's terrible, and I feel awful and discouraged. And what got me through that was hope. No, it isn't always going to be this bad. There's, there's hope. And you know, if you've ever lost hope, that's a terrible place to be. And Jesus comes and says, there's a hope. I love you. There's a hope. And you go, okay, well, what does this thing? What makes us right with God? And then what gives us this hope? Well, Paul gives us this answer. And notice this. You see that it's both the death and the resurrection of Jesus is what secures this hope. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, what is that? That's the cross. That's the, the death of Jesus Christ. We've been made right with God. We've been, in a sense, saved by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, again, that's the cross, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Right? So the death and the resurrection of Jesus are essential. And, and we get the death, right? We have a cross here. Many of you have a cross around your neck. We celebrate communion every week. That always celebrates the death of Jesus. But, but we don't ever have like a wooden empty tomb. I mean, I've never seen someone with a tomb necklace. I mean, it just, for whatever reason, it just doesn't get all the attention. And yet what, what, Jesus, what, what Paul's saying here about Jesus is that he has made you right with God through his death. But then he's given you a sure promise that in the end you will for sure be saved and be reconciled and be connected to him. And he gives that to you through his life. See, the life of Jesus, it's the trailer of what's to come. It's not the full picture, but it's a real picture. It's real footage. When you see the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, overcoming sin, overcoming death. It's a picture of what's coming for you. Jesus Christ rising from the dead is the sunrise that begins to say a new day is coming, a new day is here. And I haven't fully experienced it, but it's here and it's on its way. And this is such good news that Jesus proved all that he said was true by his resurrection. So there was a... a, a there was a place in, in Jesus' ministry, in Mark 2, you can read about this, where there was a man who was paralyzed. And the paralyzed man has no hope, except maybe he can get to Jesus. And what he needs Jesus to do is to heal him. And so his friends are, are battling to try to get him to Jesus, and they have him on this, on this mat, and they, they actually dig out part of the roof to be able to lower this guy. And it's this big scene in this crowded room, and no one can get near Jesus. And they, finally it's, you know, I mean, just imagine that, like, dirt's falling in clumps on you right now, you know? And, like, there's a paralyzed man that comes down, and he comes down, and there he is. And you would be hanging on the words of Jesus. What is Jesus going to say right now? You know what Jesus says? says, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, that blew them away. Because a couple of reasons. One, they're going, that isn't probably why the guy came here. Like, he wants to walk. That's one, part, one thing they're thinking. The other thing they're thinking is, no one can forgive sin but God alone. How is it that Jesus can claim that this man's sins are forgiven? That's a claim to be God. If you've ever thought, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, that's a claim to be God. My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows they're thinking this. And so Jesus says this, which is easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Do you get Jesus' question? Like if he says your sins are forgiven, well, who really knows? You can't see your sins. You, you, don't, you don't really know for sure. How do you know? But you know if a guy walked out of the room or not. And so Jesus says, so that you may know, I'm also going to say to the man, rise and walk. And he picks up his mat. He walks. And that's what's going on here in this passage. Paul's saying, you've been justified. You've been reconciled to God. You've been declared that everything's okay with God. But, but how do you know that's really true? It's true because you see the resurrected life of Jesus. Imagine that we could go to the tomb of Jesus. Imagine that we could go to Israel and, and fly to his tomb. And imagine that he was still in there. Like every other world leader and every other religious leader and every other king and every other person that's ever lived. Imagine you could go to Jesus' tomb. And because Jesus was a great teacher, you would sit there and you would look at this tomb and and the tour guide might say something like, in this tomb is one of the most amazing men in history. And he died for your sins. If you were thinking, you would go, how do I know? How can I be sure? Like, how do I, I mean, he's dead just like every other person's dead. How do I know that his death counts for my sins? How do I know? Maybe he just died for his own sins, you might think. How do I really know? Well, here's how we know is because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how we know. That, that, that's, the, that's the amen to Jesus. It is finished. That, that is it. We know that this happened because he rose from the dead. This promise is to come. And so God, in the midst of this, he's not just embracing us at our worst. And he's not just paying the highest cost. But he rose from the dead to ensure that we would have a hope that would sustain us in the midst of pain. But it gets even better. It gets even better. See, this is all wonderful to have your sins forgiven, isn't it? I mean, the idea that you could be justified by his death the idea that you could be saved in the last day from the wrath of God, that you would be standing before God on the last day on your judgment and have God say, Forgiven. Isn't that great news? And, and how important it is that we understand that there's a, a law of God and that we've broken that law and we need to re realize we've broken it. And that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly so that we could be, have our sins forgiven. That's wonderful news. But Paul says in this passage, it gets even better. Look at the end of this passage. Look at verse 10 and 11. See if you can notice this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, even better, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you see the word that got repeated three times there? Reconciled, reconciled, reconciliation. God proves his love because he reconciles himself to us. He reconciles himself with us. See, listen, he could be just a judge who says, your sins are forgiven. But that doesn't mean he has relationship with you. Just because you're legally righteous doesn't mean he wants anything to do with you. You could have a God that could forgive you and just tolerate you. Well, okay, you believed in my son, you're forgiven. But, but that's not what God wants. And that's not what we want. What we want and what we need and what God wants us to experience is relationship with him. There's something even better than forgiveness. It's reconciliation. It's, it's being back in relationship, right? There's a lot of talk about the courtroom of heaven. If you were standing in the courtroom of heaven and God would let you go, and, and that's all appropriate. That's all very biblical language. But the best picture of a courtroom, biblically speaking, is an adoption courtroom. It's God saying, you're mine. We're reconciled. We looked a number of weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I talked about, what if you heard about peace in the Middle East? You, you would assume that meant, well, they had stopped fighting. Well, just because the, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians stopped fighting doesn't mean they're reconciled, right? I mean, some of you, you experience in your relationships and your marriage, like there's times when you're really fighting and there's times when you're not fighting. But that doesn't mean you're reconciled. See, God's not just content to only forgive us. And those of you who, who just make this big push of, we got to make sure we understand the law, and we got to make sure that people understand forgiveness. Yes, 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 it's very important. But we also need to see God wants more than that. More than that, we rejoice right now, right? Not just in our past justification, not just in our future salvation. We rejoice right now in our current reconciliation to God. And this is how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't just want to make us clean. He also wants to embrace us, right? I think about the time when Jesus encounters a man who had leprosy. And leprosy was this awful skin disease. Your, your body was rotting. You were considered unclean. It's why people had to go live in leper colonies. And the one thing you would never do to a leper is touch him. And yet when a leper comes to Jesus and says, I want to be forgiven, I want to be healed. I want to be, I want to be cleansed. Make me clean. Jesus could have just said, okay, be clean. But Jesus also reaches out his hand and he touches him and he says, be clean. Why? Yes, God wants to forgive us. Yes, God wants to cleanse us of our guilt. But more than that, he wants to welcome us in as his children, reconciled in relationship with him. You don't do that to people you only tolerate. You do that to people for whom you have an intense, deep feeling of affection. That's what God has invited us into. If you're a follower of Christ, 
This is what you're invited into. Not more just Bible reading and rule keeping and church attending and volunteering. That's all great. God uses that to draw you closer to him. It's wonderful. But God is inviting you into a relationship with him where you would be eager to pray, where you would be eager to trust him, where you would be delighting that he loves and adores you. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, you don't have this promise. God loves you, but you don't have this guarantee of forgiveness, and you don't have this future hope unless you trust in him. And yet this is what you're missing out on if you say no. You're not just missing out on the forgiveness of your sins, though that's a big deal. Everyone say, that's a big deal? You're missing out on relationship with God, that the God who made everything who made you and knows you would want to be connected relationally as a father to you. That's what you're missing out on. We have an amazing God. He doesn't just tolerate us at arm's length. He loves us with intense, deep feelings of affection, and he proved it through his son. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you proved that to us. God, open up our hearts in such a way that we could believe that truly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. So I don't watch Everybody Loves Raymond, but I watched about 15 minutes this week. And the illustration that this show had was great because it fits perfectly. Everybody loves Raymond fans in the room? So Frank's this crotchety old dad. Raymond's this goofball sports writer kid who is just goofy. Um, And everybody warns him his whole life, don't play poker with your dad. Don't play poker with your dad. Don't play poker with your dad. Whatever. And he goes and plays poker with Frank, and he loses $3,000 to Frank. And the whole episode is about trying to make this thing right. The mom's nagging. The brother's coming over trying to make things right. Everybody's like, just fix this thing. Frank, give him, he's your kid. Give him his money back. And there's a scene where they're in the kitchen, and Raymond's like, I don't want your help, da-da-da. And the dad said, what would this ever teach my son if I was to fix this? This would teach him that no matter how bad he screws up, no matter how bad he messes his life up, that his dad's always going to be here to... And he doesn't even finish it. He walks over and he gives him the money. Because he knows even an earthly sinful dad is always going to take care of things for us. And that's what this message is about. How do we know that God is fatherly like that? That he is really going to take care of things like forgiveness of sins. And every need we have. He says, I sent my son to prove to you that I'm a good dad. Amen. And that's what we sing to. We don't sing to a theoretical God that we read about in a book. We don't sing to uh, a systematic theology idea called God. We sing to our dad in heaven. So one of the best ways to respond to this is we sing to our dad. He's listening and he wants to hear. He's happy to hear from you. In Hebrews it says, For the joy set before him, being Jesus, he endured the cross. Meaning Jesus did not begrudgingly love us. I I try to visualize him going to the cross a lot, and I kind of put me in the scene because I'm very egotistical and I like to be a part of everything. And I picture Jesus spotting me out of the corner's eye, kind of smirking, winking at me, letting me know, I'm doing this for you, bud. I love you. 
not scornful, not mad like, you idiot, look what you got me into. Dad's got this. I got this. He loves us. He proved it on the cross. So we sing, and we sing loud. We, money now. We can talk about money in a new way because we have a God who provides every need. And now we give generously. So that's another way. We, we sing, we give. We have giving boxes in the back, or you can give online. But that's just another way to say thank you to Dad. You've taken care of it. Thank you. And lastly, we take communion. We're going to do this a little differently, so just pay attention. We'll have the ushers come up. But we're going to take it together today. Here's the deal. If God is not your loving Father yet through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we ask that you let this pass. Because this is just going to be a religious thing that doesn't mean what it should mean. So we're going to pass this out, and we want the Christians in the room to take it and hold it. And I'm going to come back here in a little bit. Once all of us have our elements in front of us, we're going to take together. For those of you, everyone in the room, this is going to be kind of an extended time. Enjoy the silence. Enjoy the time you get to be alone with your Father who loves you. When we get all the elements, I'll come back up.
So we see this displayed in the New Testament. Jesus, the last thing, one of the last things he does with his disciples is he shares a meal with them. As I think about all of us in the audience, we've all got needs in our life, big needs. The disciples had the same things. They needed things, they wanted things. And Jesus, the last thing he does with them is remind them of what they truly need. He takes some bread and he said, this is my body. You do this in remembrance of me. We need Christ's life. Let's eat together.